Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. He's Ben Baldanza, who had a very quiet 11 years as the CEO of Spirit Airlines. Is that right, Ben? And now teaches about how airlines work. He's Seth Kaplan, transportation analyst for NPR's Here and Now, who knows more about airlines than almost everyone who's actually worked for one. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world each week. Today, we'll talk about an airline collapse like no other, a train trying to take people off planes, and a segment called Fine or Wine. We'll take a real customer complaint and ask Ben if the customer is always right or not. So we're going to have a lot of fun today. But first, fasten your seatbelt as we prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Well, it's the largest peacetime repatriation in the history of the United Kingdom, and it's happening because an airline collapsed. Actually, an entire travel company called Thomas Cook, uh, which includes an airline, it had been doing business for 170 years, but not anymore. 150,000 Brits were stranded abroad, and the country scrambled to bring them all back home, even borrowing a giant Malaysia Airlines double-decker A380 to cram aboard almost 500 people at a time. Now, Ben, uh, in a lot of ways, we think of the UK as not so different from the US. But in this case, Ben, this big repatriation, almost as if a war had ended. I mean, when, I don't know, Eastern Airlines or Pan Am went out of business, Americans stranded abroad were out of luck. They had to find their own way home. This seems awfully kind and generous. Well, the the Brits certainly have a way of doing things, don't they? And one of the things that uh, happens when you buy a ticket out of the UK is passengers actually pay a surcharge of about two and a half British pounds, which is about $3 at today's rate. And what that is, is, is essentially mandatory travel insurance. They call it the Air Travelers Organizers License Protection. So the government in the UK actually collects money to do this kind of repatriation. So people have been paying this forever and probably just annoyed when they look at their bill as what's this extra 250 <laughs> But in this case, I mean, the government has been collecting this money and this is the exact purpose for it. So it sounds like they're doing what they had been charging people forever to do. It certainly now seems like it was a really nice thing to do. Maybe it's something we should think about in the U.S. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but they did it with the with, with the passengers' own money. Well, and including a lot of the people who didn't get need need repatriations money too. Yeah, interesting public policy question there. Uh, well, Amtrak, the passenger railroad service in the U.S., began offering nonstop Acela Express trains between New York City and Washington D.C. Uh, the trip takes about two and a half hours. That shaves. 15 minutes or so off the usual trip on Acela. Acela caters to business travelers with limited stops up and down the Northeast Corridor, but not until now, no stops between these two key destinations. Uh, For now, there's just one nonstop from New York City uh, down to DC in the morning and one going back at night, clearly meant for quick day trips. But if all goes well for Amtrak, there could be more to come. Uh, Ben, this show is called 
airlines confidential, why are we talking about a train? Well, maybe one reason is that Amtrak's run by Richard Anderson, who used to run Delta. Yeah, that's So we got an airline guy running the trains. This is clearly a bid to try to pull even more people off airplanes. Between New York and Washington, more people take the train than fly every day. So the Amtrak already has sort of a plurality, at least, if not a majority of that traffic that goes between New York and Washington. This nonstop train is a real interesting idea. It's clearly aimed at New York-based travelers because it leaves New York early in the morning and goes back at the end of the day. It'll be interesting to see whether they reverse that at some point and offer the same kind of same day in out for the Washington-based traveler. I think it's a really good move by Amtrak. It, it, it says that they're serious about wanting to win. When you look at the things they've put out publicly since Richard Anderson's been the CEO there, it looks like the Northeast Corridor is one of the only places that Amtrak actually makes money. And so trying to figure out how they can make a little more money and help subsidize the other money losing parts of Amtrak is a pretty good idea to me. You were helping run things at U.S. Airways in the late 1990s, and I know U.S. Airways had one of the two big shuttles along with Delta. Uh, U.S. Airways now, of course, merged uh, with with American. In those days, those Northeast corridor shuttles you know, from, from LaGuardia to DT and LaGuardia to Boston were, were huge money makers for the airlines, weren't they? And, and, and if I'm right about that, I'm wondering what changed between them and then and now. Well, you know, it's they they were certainly big revenue generators. I used to joke when I was at US Airways that the shuttle represented about 3% of our capacity, but about 50% of management's time. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we spent as much time talking about what the right bagel would be on the shuttle <laughs> as everything else at the, the entire airline. Yeah. Right. That's right. The reality is, is middle of the day flights and things like that were never that full. And the passenger idea that there's a flight every hour, you know, it's going to be on the hour or at the 30 point of the hour, depending on whether you were on the which shuttle product you were on, which carriers. And um, and that was sort of comforting to customers, but it was never fully economic. Certainly the morning flights and an evening flights and some in the middle of the day worked. And what's happened now is while the products are still branded as shuttles, they're actually run much more economically efficient. There's no 2 p.m. departure right now on Delta, at least, yeah. and, and others. And what they've done is they better match the capacity of the demand. So there are a lot of people getting bumped off shuttle flights, right? There's a seat if you want it, but... There's not a plane when nobody's showing up. And I'm guessing it's much more profitable today than it was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Interesting, because you look at them, you see they're smaller. You think, well, maybe Acela has killed them. Maybe they're less profitable. And it's true that Acela has taken some business over the past, I guess, nearly two decades that it's been around. But also the airlines maybe have just gotten smarter about things. Well, Delta also shocked the airline world and certainly shocked American Airlines by buying 20% of Latam. That's the giant South America. Airline group that formed when Chile's LAN and Brazil's TOM merged back in 2012. Uh, LAN uh, was a close partner of Americans going back to the late 1990s, but now here comes Delta buying part of LATAM. And of course, its real interest isn't just as an investor. 
Not at all, Seth. They want more than to be just an investor. They want what uh, airline people call a joint venture. What that means is a true sharing of revenues and costs over different companies' flights. And Delta has been trying to put these kind of things together all around the world, in Asia, in Northern Latin America, across the transatlantic with their purchase of Virgin Atlantic and others. And it's a real interesting play by Delta. Essentially, they're giving themselves a seat at the table of the airline issues and economics around the world with these joint ventures. For American Airlines, it's a real threat for them. Since the 1980s, when American bought Eastern Airlines assets in Latin America, they've been the largest player in carrying traffic from the U.S. to Latin America. Delta has been building service out of their Atlanta hub and a few other points, but they've never really had the crown jewel of service into Miami which is the number one origin point and number one destination point for people going to and from Latin America. This deal with LATAM brings them that. LATAM has a lot of service into Miami because, as you know, LATAM has operations not only in Chile, where the group started, but in Colombia, in Peru, in Brazil. So this is a real threat to American. I'm sure they're thinking about what this means, and it's very possible Delta may unseat American as the number one business carrier from the United States to and from South America. And that would be a, a big, big change in the industry. Yeah, and these joint ventures, I mean, part of the point of them is, is that uh, unlike a lot of other industries, usually airlines aren't actually allowed to merge across borders. So it's almost like they create merged virtual airlines that, uh, as you said, you know, Delta bought uh, nearly half of Virgin Atlantic. And when you uh, fly either one of those across the Atlantic or when you fly American or British Airways across the Atlantic, uh, you know, the, the planes might say two different things, but but it's as if you're flying one airline. They're able to coordinate their schedules and fares and, and all the rest of that. What's interesting here is that Latam is leaving the One World Alliance. Uh, that's the the alliance with British Airways and Qantas are two of its key partners. Uh, Iberia, part of the same company as British Airways. It's not joining SkyTeam, uh, which is Delta's alliance. So it can keep working with BA, Iberia, and and Qantas. And that's that's different from what sometimes happens when airlines leave one alliance. Very often, that means they join another. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's an interesting play that Delta's doing here where they're sort of saying, here's what we can really get out of the alliance kind of relationship. But this joint venture idea gives us the ability to participate in more and uh, maybe have different relationships with some airlines and maybe have a little of both. Delta has not been unenthusiastic about alliances. You know, they're a, they're a big player in Sky Team. They were one of the founding members of Sky Team. They talk about Sky Team and all of their promotional materials, but they also haven't done as much as the other big alliances, One World and Star Alliance, in trying to really create a seamless travel experience. So Delta clearly thinks about this partnership thing a little bit differently than their big competitors. And it's a it's a thing that requires, the way they think about it requires more capital because they're actually putting money and investing in these other airlines. But it's also giving them ultimately, I think, uh, a bigger seat at the table or a bigger seat at more tables around the world, which is going to be good for Delta. It's good now and is going to be good for them as the world continues to evolve. Now, of course, the airlines are going to say this is great for customers. They're going to have to convince regulators to let them uh, have the joint venture that they want. Uh, I mean, let's be honest, whatever airlines do, they're doing 
primarily for their own good. That's why they're doing it, right? Uh, they're, they're, they're not running charities. But um, what do you think? Can uh, these these kinds of situations also be good for customers uh, in, in addition to the airlines? Well, sure. I mean, if you if you're a Delta customer, and so that means you know you're you carry their credit card and you're earning miles in their program. The more opportunities you have to participate through that program by flying different airlines and so on. I mean, I think it's, now you could travel with this deal. You could travel not only to and from South America, but within South America, and still sort of be a Delta customer and get recognized with through the Freak of Fire program and in the ways they reward loyalty and things like that. So it is good for customers. You know, when you're in a when you're in another part of the world, especially if it's the first time you've been there, it's always good to see sort of a friendly face, right? And if that's a face you know and trust. That can be a very good thing for customers. And speaking of Delta, let's wrap up this first segment by taking a look at how many passengers airlines bumped involuntarily in the most recently reported quarter. That was the second quarter of this year. Why do I say speaking of Delta? Well, because they led the industry with exactly zero involuntary denied boardings all quarter. Can't beat that. Uh, but Hawaiian Airlines tied Delta also with zero. Next was JetBlue with just seven and United with 31. Uh, now, because United's a much bigger airline than JetBlue, they both had a, a similar rate of just one involuntary denied boarding for about every million passengers. At the other end of the list, American bumped more than 5,000 people involuntarily. That's about one out of every 10,000 passengers on American. So why do airlines bump anyone from a flight? We'll talk about that next. This show is just reaching cruise altitude, so sit back and relax, but keep your seatbelt fastened in case of any unexpected turbulence, just like we do up here in the Airlines Confidential Cockpit. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. It's Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza. I'm Seth Kaplan. And now at Cruise Altitude, we want to get to that discussion about why airlines bump passengers. But first, let's take a question from Dina in Washington, D.C., who called in. Yes. Hi. I uh, recently booked an airline ticket and more than ever, there were fees for absolutely everything, like even any seat assignment and all, not just the exit row seats. I feel like everyone I talk to hates these fees. So why don't airlines just charge a little more up front and get rid of the seats? It seems like that way they could stop annoying people and still make just as much money. Now, Ben, I guess Southwest Airlines kind of does what Dina wants, right? Everyone knows bags fly free on Southwest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Bags do fly free on Southwest or as part of your ticket anyway. Yeah, they're yeah, included. D- Dina, <laughs> Dina clearly likes things simple, right? Uh, buy one ticket sit where you want to sit, get your bag taken. And that's great. And that's fine. And Southwest kind of does that for them. But ultimately, Dean is going to pay a little bit more for her ticket for that kind of service, just as if you went to a restaurant and the drinks and dessert were included sort of forcefully as part of your uh, as part of your dinner. We pay for things a la carte and a lot of the things we buy. And what's happened with the a la carte nature of airline services 
separating things like bag charges, seat assignment charges, and other things that airlines do. It's done a couple of things. It's put more price control in the airline, in the customer's hands, I mean, because they can choose what they want. There's a big insurance company out there now that's spending a lot of money on advertising saying, customize your insurance and only pay for what you actually use. That's exactly what airlines have been doing here. It doesn't serve the customers like Dina that well, because what she wants is the bundled price. And what you see a lot of airlines doing, Seth, now is really offering both. They'll say, look, if you want the, if you want the, just the seat on the airplane and customize what you want, you can buy this fare. If you want the whole thing bundled up, you can buy this fare, which is a little higher. And a lot of airlines are offering that sort of, uh, product mix to customers. That's a good thing because customers like Dina can get what they want. Customers who maybe want to save a little money and not take advantage of all the extra things that are included in an otherwise bundled fare can save money that way too. And you, you mentioned, you know, imagine go to a restaurant, everything included. Uh, and, and I think most people would resent if they went to a restaurant, just, uh, you know, if I, if I order a sandwich and a glass of water and, and uh, someone at the next table has a steak and a glass of wine and I get charged the same, um, I might not like that. But of course, I mean, there is such a thing as an all-you-can-eat buffet. And I guess the airline industry is sort of like that in the sense that most restaurants are not all-you-can-eat buffets and most airlines now are not all-you-can-eat buffets, but you have a few of them in the restaurant industry and you have South Southwest, if, if you if you want the the all you can eat buffet, yeah, I think I think that's right. Although Southwest pushes that game well, and they do, but they still charge if you want to board the airplane first, and they charge for overweight baggage, and they have some extra charges there too. So it's kind of maybe the all you can eat buffet with the but the still walk up cash box, the upcharge. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, do you have a question for us? You could do what Dina did. Call us anytime during the week and record your question at three zero five. Three seven nine seven four two nine. Again, that's three zero five three seven nine seven four two nine. Or you can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com. That's questions, plural, at airlines, plural, confidential.com. Airlines confidential, all one word there. So uh, let's get back to that discussion about airlines bumping passengers. We mentioned before that the uh, uh, number of involuntary denied boardings or involves, as airlines call them, uh, is down uh, on a lot of airlines. Uh, But Ben, just more fundamentally, why do airlines bump passengers? Well, it's a great question, Seth. And airlines bump passengers simply because there are times when there are more passengers at the gate than there are seats at the airplane, on the airplane. And why would that happen? Well, let's think about it. The most obvious one and the ones that media pundits like to talk about most is what airlines do called overbooking, which is actually selling more seats than they have. And why would they do that? Well, they do that because they know that some customers don't show up for the flight. Sometimes it's because they forget about the flight. Sometimes it's because they get caught in the security line. Sometimes it's because they they don't get to the airport in time. Sometimes it might be because they're connecting. So if they're coming to a hub at noon and scheduled to take the 1 p.m. connector out, if that flight that's supposed to arrive at noon arrives two hours late, well, they don't show up for that one o'clock flight. The airline might put them on a later flight, but as far as that one o'clock goes, they had a no-show. And so airlines overbook to compensate for that, and customers pay lower fares because of that. If the government said it's illegal to overbook, for example, everyone would pay a higher fare and there'd be more empty seats on airplanes because airlines couldn't couldn't compensate for that. 
airlines know when people don't show up and there's good data around that. So they can model that very well. And overbooking is a science. It's not just a guess. The other thing that's really important is that even airlines that don't overbook have oversales. And how would that be the case? Well, there's a couple of things. There's clearly the connections that I just talked about that would drive that. You can neither of those connecting flights could be overbooked, but if your connection's late, you can create an overbooking. Some flights um, have long distances or operate over high temperatures, and that limits how much weight the airline can carry. So airlines are sometimes Im- impose on themselves what are called seat blocks, which means on this flight on this day, because of the temperature or the winds, we can't use 10 seats on this airplane. So it's possible that a 150 seat plane at the time of departure can only safely take off with 140 of those seats filled. And the airline doesn't learn that until that morning more than 140 people show up so they got to take some of the people off even though there are, might be physical seats for them also one of the most famous denied boarding situations happened with when united dragged that passenger dr david dow off the airplane yeah, that wasn't an oversell um, was it <laughs> And that wasn't an oversale. That was a case where crews who had to fly a flight later that day needed seats on that flight. So they chose to take paying customers off that flight to carry their crews on board. There were not more customers who had bought tickets than there were seats on that plane, but the crews put the flight in an oversold situation. And so whether it's an operational issue, it could be also two different airplane types. Some Many airlines offer different ty- sizes of airplanes. So maybe the airplane is booked with a 150 seat plane. At the time of near the time of departure, that plane may have a mechanical problem or maybe it show up because it's uh, it was late on its arrival. So they pull up another airplane that maybe only has 120 seats on it. So now they have 30 fewer seats at the gate than they were originally planning. That could put them in an oversold situation. The point is there's a lot of things operationally, crew, um, equipment size that can cause an oversold situation. So whether it's overbooking or something else, airlines need to be good at figuring out how to get customers to say, I'm happy to get rid of my seat. And if you pay me appropriately, I'm happy to take a later flight. And that rate that you were showing were all involuntary overbookings or oversales. That means customers who were asked to get off when they didn't want to. None of that says that it's possible in the what you set up there that Delta actually overbooks more people or oversells more people than American does, but they're just much, much better at buying them off when they do. In fact, Delta was one of two airlines that that publicly, after the the Dr. Dow dragging, which you mentioned, uh, probably the world's most famous involuntary denied boarding ever. Uh, that's not how it happens to most customers, usually uh, unpleasant, yeah, but, but, but much more mundane. Yeah. Um, so, so Delta and United itself, which was the airline involved there, both said that they would uh, pay up to nearly $10,000 if they had to. Uh, to get somebody off a plane. And then once you're at that point, I, I mean, you're always going to find somebody uh, to give up their seat for, for, for that much money. And, and uh, usually it doesn't, doesn't take nearly that. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, that's a, so, so it was interesting because you said uh, it saves customers money. People pay less. And I guess what you mean there is that if an airline was sort of required to take off with empty seats, then it would have to get all its money from 
the, the, if you take the 150 seat airplane, it would have to get all its money from 145 people. So they'd have to pay a little more uh, rather than having 150 full seats. Is that, that's what you meant, I assume, right? Yeah, I think I think that's right. What happens is when the airlines overbook, meaning they sell more seats than they have, what they're really selling is more cheap seats. Airlines always save seats for the highest fare paying customers. So what it does is it it allows them to keep selling the cheapest fares on the flight for a little bit longer when they overbook. So the customer who benefits from the overbooking tends to be the one who pays the lowest fare. Yeah. And uh, the people who give up their seats, I mean, I remember when I was younger and single, uh, I used to fly around the world on denied boarding compensation, as as it's called. I mean, I, you know, most people show up at the airport hoping to catch a flight. I used to hope to not catch the flight uh, and, and be able Maybe that's why you were single. Be, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And be, be able to travel free later. But yeah, no, everybody, I think almost everybody has their price when it comes to this. Even now, you know, yeah, 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 I'm not going to get home, you know, days later for a few hundred dollars um, when, you know, whatever family waiting for me. Uh, but um, I, I mean, I was on my way to a conference in San Diego a few years ago. I was connecting in Atlanta, so you know, Delta. And there was a flight that was way oversold and they started offering, you know, $300, $400. Well, I really should get there, but they got up to $800. I gave up my seat. Like I, I can miss the first session, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and other people who looked like business travelers did it too. So yeah, usually wouldn't take the $10,000, but the, uh, the, Ten thousand dollars should certainly get it done, or some some level a lot lot lower than that. Uh, you know, let's take another question. This one by email from Randy in Brookline, Massachusetts. Randy asks, "Someday will I board a plane with no pilots because the plane can fly itself?" Ben, will 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 Randy? Will we all do that someday? <laughs> well, I don't think Randy or you or I will. But if he asked the question is someday will someone board a plane with no pilots, <laughs> that, that's certainly, uh, I think, likely. You know, the, the technology is moves very quickly. The world of autonomous vehicles is very active right now, but we still don't see that as a mainstream product right now. And I certainly think we're going to have autonomous vehicles driving on our roads long before people will be boarding an airplane with only computers in the cockpit and somebody on the ground, not in the plane, sort of directing where that plane goes. It seems pretty obvious to me that we're going to get there at some point, certainly in military applications and in drones and things like that. We control things that fly in the air remotely today, but it's a, that's a far stretch from sort of the societal acceptance of boarding an airplane with no pilots. Everybody feels comforted when they see that uh, that seasoned pilot walk into the cockpit to say, look, we're safe in a situation like when um, – when Captain Sullenberger saved that U.S. Airways airplane yeah. by landing in the river safely and, you know, just reminds people how important people in the cockpit can be when things go wrong. So technology is going to clearly get there. We're going to get there and we're going to be getting in cars that don't have drivers and we're going to be getting in airplanes that don't have pilots at some point later. But I think it's going to be, you know, my son who's 
13 now, maybe his kids or maybe his grandkids might see that. It's a ways off. Randy's a big, big thinker. I think he, uh, I think maybe he needs to go ask Elon Musk for a job. <laughs> <laughs> and again, you can call in with your question at 305-379-7429. Again, 305-379-7429 or email us like Randy did questions at airlinesconfidential.com. Up next, it's time for some moaning and groaning in the fine or wine portion of the show. Time for more Airlines Confidential after this. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. Massmedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. Beginning our initial descent here on Airlines Confidential, I'm Seth Kaplan, back with Ben Baldanza. Now, I want to turn to a part of the show we call Fine or Wine. Uh, that's W-H-I-N-E, not to be confused with you know, a, a good fine wine. Well, we'll listen to an actual customer complaint filed with the U.S. Department of Transportation against an airline. And, and we'll ask Ben if it's fine or a whine. In other words, if the customer has a point or, or if they're just complaining. Ben, you have a complaint? Well, I've got a lot of them. Here's <laughs> one that, we, I that I thought was particularly interesting. <laughs> this one says, a new depth in airline gouging has been reached. A few months ago, I used frequent flyer miles to purchase an international ticket to be used this September. Two of the segments are on Swiss Air. I called Swiss to select my seats, and I was advised there would be a $30 charge per seat per flight. I asked Swiss if Swiss was the only airline to levy this fee, and I was told yes. What's next? Supplemental fees to get on and get off the plane? <laughs> Okay, Ben. So, so is it? So, so what do you think here? Uh, is this person redeem? Yeah, they were they were promised a, a free ticket by their airline. I'm guessing, you know, if, if they're in the U.S., probably United, a, a partner of Swiss, right? Probably redeemed right. some United miles. Could have been Air Canada. Um, and uh, you know, hey, I'm going to get a free ticket, and then they're being told to pay for the seat assignment. Is it fine or is it a wine? Yeah, to pay for something that's free, right? <laughs> well, actually, Seth, I think this is more of a wine than really? fine. <laughs> well, you might expect Spoken that, by right? a guy who used but to it, rip off customers for a living, right? <laughs> well, let's think about what happened here. This customer flew around on their main airline, which we think is probably United since they're a partner with Swiss. And then when they wanted to take a trip, they wanted to go to a destination that maybe United didn't fly to, or maybe United didn't have the right time service or something to. So they were able to get the seats on Swiss. When you think about that, that's really quite an amazing and terrific benefit. You give your money to one company and the loyalty credit you earn from that allows you to spend that credit on a different company. That's really quite impressive when you think about what these alliances have done for customers in terms of frequent flyer benefit. What would be unrealistic, however, and this is why I think this is more of a whine than a, than a legitimately fair complaint, is it's unrealistic to expect that with all the partners airlines have, that everyone's going to line up their services to be all identical. Swiss likely... I'm only assuming this, but likely charges that $30 charge per seat to all of their customers and to then try to exclude it just for customers 
who use their United mileage credit to take a free trip would be hard for them to do, hard to implement. It'd be expensive. They'd have to have the technology to make that happen. And I think what what a customer might think is, it's great that I get to use my miles to get a seat on this flight, but I'm also going to be subject to any rules and regulations or fees in this case of that partner airline if I choose to fly them. And I think that's a more realistic thing for customers to think about. The net is still incredibly positive. This customer gets to take a trip on an airline they may have never flown before in their life and sit in the seat for no ticket cost. So if they pay $30, I hope they get a really nice seat that is really comfortable for them. <laughs> and we should specify that the, the airline can't require them to pay $30 to travel. That's just if they want a, 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 an advanced seat assignment. You could show up and they would they would give you a seat. Uh, it just might not be the Yeah, that, that's almost always that, the case that, with every that airline. That, that's exactly yeah. right. Um, let's turn now to a question from Marsha in Arlington, Virginia. She called in. Hey, guys, I have a question for you. My 12-year-old son plays the violin, and occasionally when we travel, he likes to take his violin to practice. His violin is a three-quarter size, meaning it's not quite full size yet, and it doesn't fit in the box outside of the gate area, yet it does fit in the overhead bin and fits underneath the seat in front of me. However, we're always asked to check his violin, which we're reluctant to do because it's a valuable instrument, Can you give me some guidance or some advice on what to do about this violin situation that we know fits in the overhead bin and under the seat? Thanks, guys. All right, Ben. So what should Marsha do here? Uh, we, uh, I think I'll, some people remember uh, that famous YouTube hit, United Breaks Guitars. How can uh, how can Marsha avoid having the next big hit, uh, you know, United or some other airline breaks my son's violin? Well, you know, this is, this is an interesting situation and it, it's, a, it's a real good a reminder of all the things that can happen in an airline operation every day. If you think about it, most bags that customers carry are similar in dimension. They might be small or large, but they're mostly sort of rectangular or square or something like that. Airlines have built sizer boxes that you can test to see, will this fit under the seat? Will this fit in the overhead bin and things? But there's a lot of other things that people could bring on board, whether it's medical equipment, whether it's specialty machinery, whether it's musical instruments, whether it's sporting equipment, things like that. And it's not realistic to expect that a call center agent or even a ticket counter agent is going to have in front of them a list of everything possible that someone could bring on a plane. And that's where judgment comes into play. And airlines are differ in how well they train their their employees and employees are different in terms of how well they react to those kind of situations. My guess is, as Marsha explained, it's a three-quarter size violin that would easily fit under the seat. My guess is that most agents at most airlines, even low-cost airlines, would look at that situation and say, you know, you're right, that'll fit under the seat, that'll count as your personal item. They likely wouldn't allow Marsha to carry three things on board if their normal policy is two things on board. Or to carry um, a, a, but a, if, a, a base on board, maybe. <laughs> or, uh, 
Yeah, yeah, not a bass or a cello or uh, bagpipes or something like that. That's right. That's right. But you know, the smaller violin, I think most agents are are going to look at that and say, "Sure, you can fit that under the seat," and and she's just going to have to be nice, and they'll probably recognize that. I can't say for sure that there's not some agent at some airline who'll say that doesn't fit in the sizer box, so it can't go. But I think that's the less likely situation. You know, as Marsha's son ultimately gets a little larger and goes to a full-size violin. If that's not going to fit under the seat, maybe she's going to have to use that for her overhead bin piece. But I still think that uh, most agents will probably judge the situation for what it is. And again, it's just impossible to arm an agent with a list of where everything possibly goes, given all the things that people try to bring on airplanes. Yeah, in the end, just some judgment involved. And finally this week, a happy story for some airline passengers, and for one airline anyway. A high school cross-country running team was on its way from Philadelphia to compete down in Orlando when Frontier Airlines canceled their flight. With little time to spare, it looked like they were going to have to miss the competition. Well, the kids started tweeting, Delta saw one of their tweets and sent a, a, a private plane to pick them up and fly them to Orlando. It took all kinds of coordination because Delta doesn't even normally fly nonstop from Philly to Orlando, but the airline had a spare MD-88 on its way to Philly within a couple of hours. The team made it to Orlando in time and won first place. Well, that's really uh, terrific, isn't it? That Delta did that. Uh, they doesn't say whether Delta has to pay thirty dollars for their seat, <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, it's it's actually a wonderful thing Delta did here. And kudos to Delta having people looking at social media, identifying that situation and seeing, look, at this is something we can take advantage of. I'm sure they that person didn't have the immediate right to say, we're going to send a plane there, but they know who to contact. And Delta was a nimble enough organization to make that happen. It made Delta look great. It made Frontier look not so great. And uh, and I'm sure that, that those, those students, when they're out in the world, um, earning money and, and at their own jobs are going to remember that Delta treated them right in this situation. Yeah. Delta's done this a few times. I remember a few months back, there was a, a, a group of kids on their way from Oklahoma City to Richmond, Virginia. In that case, it was an American flight that canceled and Delta uh, came came to the rescue. But yeah, no, it, it, it's uh, astute of them to be on the lookout for these uh, kinds of things because it, it certainly is uh, good publicity in, in addition to just uh, helping these people. Good to see. Absolutely. Well, what do you think? Did this episode win first place? Either way, we'd love to hear from you, especially your airline questions for us to answer in a future episode at 305-379-7429. That's 305-379-7429 or visit airlinesconfidential.com. That's airlines, plural, confidential.com. From the Airlines Confidential Studios, I'm Ben Baldanza. And I'm Seth Kaplan. We'll see you next time. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.